Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Our uh, scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God and not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I ran track when I was in junior high, uh, volunteered for that for those two years, and since then, I have only willingly run in one competitive race, and the reason why that number is one is because of how that one went. A friend of mine was organizing a 5K to raise money for charity. I was in college. I was more persuadable on matters like this than I would be today. And so I decided to sign up for it to support the cause. And so the day came for the race. And I'll be completely honest. I don't want to inflate my own story or or boost my ego or anything. I don't remember exactly how the race was going. I remember thinking it was going better than I thought it was going to go, that I hadn't keeled over or anything like that yet. And so I'm running along and we get to the halfway point of the race. And again, I don't know if this is accurate, but in my memory, the halfway point was at the top of this hill. And so I'm running along and I get to the top of the hill and there's a marker that this is the halfway point. And actually some friends of mine from college were there by that marker to mark the halfway point to cheer us on to say, hey, you know, keep going. You're just halfway there. And in my memory, I I run down the hill and I don't know how much longer I run, but I run downhill and run for a while. uh, Like I said, probably two minutes, but in my mind, it's like a week. And... (laughs) I'm running along, and my friend Matt, Matt is a, he's now a preacher at a church in Missouri. He and I are actually collaborating together on this series through Ephesians, but my friend Matt drives up next to me in his car, and he says, hey, did you know you were supposed to turn around? And I thought, if I had known that, why would I still be running in this direction? My friends that had been at the halfway point had done a really good job of encouragement. They forgot to mention that they were supposed to, they were there to tell us to turn around and run back the way we came. And so my friend Matt picked me up. He drove me back to the halfway point. I kind of glared at my friends who had failed me and, <laughs> and finished the race from there. And 
I tell you that story uh, because I think it's a, it's a fairly decent portrait of the passage of Scripture that Rich has just read for us. Uh, because in that span of time, however long it was, where I was running past the halfway point, keep going, who knows where, I might still be running if, if Matt hadn't intervened to this very day, it'd be like a Forrest Gump situation, I don't really know. I was running in the complete opposite direction, and I had no idea. And in the passage of Scripture in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, it gets covered up a little bit in our English translations, but Paul describes what Jesus has done for us, the transformation he brings us in terms of walking. Uh, he, he begins uh, in the first of the three sections of this passage by saying, this is how someone who does not know Jesus walks. This is how you were walking before you knew Jesus. And then in the third section, verses 8 to 10, he describes, now this is how someone who does know Jesus walks. They walk in good works. This is what your walk looks like now that you've met Jesus. And in the middle of those two sections, verses 4 to 7, he describes what Jesus has done to bring that turnaround to transform someone from walking this direction towards walking in this one. And that's the contrast that is set up in this passage. And as we look at those three sections, I think we find all of humanity in there somewhere. Uh, Because all of human existence centers around the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's what Paul describes that Jesus has done in this passage that gives us the lens through which we view the rest of our existence. If you're walking with Jesus, this this passage tells you how God has made that possible and what that is to look like. And as you hear this passage read, you might hear things that remind you of the life you had before you met Jesus. You might be reminded of what Jesus has done. You might be called again to walk with him wherever he is leading, and that's a beautiful thing. And if that's you, I hope we can celebrate that together so we can boldly walk wherever God leads us. If you're not a follower of Jesus and hear this passage read, it might come across as a little strong. It would seem like Paul is overstating his case. Like life apart from Jesus can't be as dire as Paul makes it sound in these verses. And if that's you, I can understand why you might think that. But I would ask you to listen to the case Paul makes and take it seriously. Because there might be a chance that we need to respond to his words. And I don't know what that looks like for you, whether that's stepping into faith in Jesus for the first time, just stepping more deeply into an experience of the life Jesus wants you to have, whatever it might be, whoever you are, whatever brought you into this room this morning, my hope is you can see the way Jesus has come to turn our lives around so that we can walk in the life that he desires for us. That's where this passage is going to end up. That's the good news we're going to land on, but we can't get there without first stopping at the bad news. Paul begins by describing this life apart from Jesus, and he says that it is a life that is walking in the way of death. To read verses 1 and 2 of this passage again, Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That word translated live in verse 2 in the original language, it, it literally means walk. Before meeting Jesus, we might not have realized it. We might have thought things were good, but Paul says we were walking in the way of death. Maybe you've seen someone else, you yourself have a story of of pulling a child back from danger. Whatever that was, they're about to touch something hot, they're about to walk out into traffic, they're about to fall off a cliff, I don't know, off the couch, something a little less dramatic. But that child might have thought everything was fine, everything was going along, totally normal, they were living their life, and you could see that they were headed towards death, or at least injury, And you had to pull them back. And Paul says that is how we lived before we knew Jesus. 
Things might have seemed good enough. Well, things were going pretty well for us. I got a good job. I've got a 401k set up. Everything's going okay. But we were headed towards death. And the reason why is because we were living in the realm of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. According to scripture, we never live neutrally. We might think, you know, we're, we're good people. I've got some bad habits I need to clean up. We might look at the world around us, people who don't know Jesus, and think, I mean, they're 95% of the way there. They're great people already. All they got to do is start waking up a little earlier on Sunday mornings, and that's the last box they need to check. Paul would disagree. Life apart from God is not mostly good with some bad mixed in. It is alienation from God that leads to death. And the reason why is because we have an enemy who is opposed to God, his people, and his purposes, and is doing everything to stop those things. We live in a world infected by evil, a world where things don't function as they should, a world that has disease and decay and division, and that is not just a passive reality. Satan is opposed to the purposes of God. He loves nothing more than to cause hurt and division among God's people in order to pull them away from the life God desires for them. This is the reality of our lives apart from Jesus and for every part of our world that is not fully under his reign. And it's at this point where if we have been around church for very long, we might be tempted to cross our arms and say, yep, sounds about right. I mean, look around at the world. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Satan is alive and well as far as I can tell, and all these people that don't know Jesus just aren't smart enough to figure it out. And we can acknowledge that our world is broken, but Paul won't allow us to take that line of thinking too far. Because if you notice in verse 3, he switches, from switch, some, excuse me, he switches from speaking in the second person to speaking in the third person. He goes from, or excuse me, he goes to speaking in the first person, I should say. I, I know some grammar. Uh, Paul switches, the point I'm trying to make, Paul switches from saying, this is how messed up your life was before you knew Jesus, to saying, this is how messed up we all were before we knew Jesus. Paul knew this personally. Uh, no one gets off this hook. If you've wandered into church for the first time this morning or if you were born in a pew, this is what was true of each of us. It is not something we can escape. Paul knew scripture well before he knew Jesus. He knew all the stories that were preparing the way for Jesus, but he didn't believe in Jesus. And that led him to imprison and murder those who did. And as he looks back on his life, he doesn't say, oh boy, we all made some mistakes in our 20s, didn't we? He doesn't look back and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad, I, glad I put that behind me. I'm, 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 glad I've, I'm glad I've gotten back on the right path. He says that he, just like everyone else apart from Jesus, was on a path headed towards death. And that reality is true for each of us. Going along on our own terms does not get us most of the way there. It sets us towards death. And if that's true, that means we are all deserving of wrath. We had walked away from God, which meant we deserved punishment. And if we're being honest, that might sound harsh. I mean, we live in a world that doesn't like to judge people. It sounds difficult to stand up and say that anyone, much less everyone, is deserving of wrath. I mean, surely there's some people that are off the hook with this. And if that's what we want to think, let's consider that for a few moments. Because if we say that not everyone deserves wrath, we either have to say that no one deserves it or that there is a line somewhere. And it seems like our world doesn't want to live in the world where there is absolutely no justice. 
We want a world where something is done about wrongdoing. We want a world where the authorities are angered by the things that make us angry and they do something to stop it. We want to live in a world with some wrath. Otherwise, all the atrocities and injustices of history just go unpunished. But that means we have to draw the line somewhere of what does deserve punishment. And when we do that, it seems like human nature tends to run too far in the other direction and forget to include ourselves. When we say we want God to get angry at the things that make us angry, we want God to do something about injustice, we can forget that there are also things that are deserving of wrath in us. We can say we want those who wrong the vulnerable to be punished. We want those who get away with injustice to pay. We want the arrogant and the abusive to be stopped. And we forget that there is wrong, there is injustice, there is arrogance in each and every one of us. When we say we want wrongs to be righted out there, we also have to acknowledge that there are wrongs that need to be righted in here. And if we're going to draw the line somewhere, we have to include ourselves in that picture. We need to be brought to justice just as much as the people that we want to see brought to justice. At the end of the day, we deserve wrath just as much as anyone else. We are each guilty of gratifying our own desires instead of the desires of God. We are all, apart from God, headed towards death. And yet the story doesn't end there. After establishing all of that, Paul moves into verse 4, and this might be where we would expect him to really drop the hammer. He's just told us that we deserve wrath. We might expect the next step to be, and God's got a lot of wrath stored up, so buckle up. But that's not what he says. He says, God has great love for us, and he's rich in mercy. Instead of being angry with us, he loves us. We deserve a God who is rich in wrath, and yet he is rich in mercy, lavishing it on us in Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, it raised us from the dead too. When Jesus walked out of his tomb, he opened up the way for every one of us to step into a resurrected life as well through his grace. We did nothing to earn it. God gave it to us as a free gift, overflowing out of his own perfect love. Jesus conquered death so that we might not be defeated by it in spite of of what we deserved. And that's not something for far off in the future. It's a reality that's available right now. In verses 5 and 6, Paul uses three different verbs to describe what is available to us now because of Jesus. He says that God made us alive with Christ. He's raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him. And I don't want to get too far down the grammar rabbit hole because I'll get bored of listening to me if I do. And I've already established in this sermon that I probably shouldn't be trusted when it comes to grammar. But... If you notice, all the verbs in those verses are for completed actions. We have already been made alive. We have already been raised up. We have already been seated. When you say yes to following Jesus, this is what is made available to you right then and there. It's not a carrot dangled out in front of us that God will give us in the future. It's not some goal we're working really hard to get to. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been raised into resurrected life. That process is not complete, but what will one day be made clear to all at the end of time is already begun the moment you say yes to following Jesus. You've been raised to a new life in Christ. That's what we are called to step into that resurrected life. We are not called to say, well, you know, I'm doing the best I can, or maybe I'll get there one day. You're not trying to resurrect yourself. Jesus has already made the power of the resurrection available. You're not on some self-improvement plan. God has already raised you up as his child. You're not looking forward to some time in the future when you can give faith more attention. You are right here and now, seated in God's presence as a part of his royal family. 
Don't settle for less. Don't sell yourself. More importantly, don't sell the message of Jesus short. This life is not a waiting room for resurrected life in the future. Resurrected life with God, the life that God created you to live, is available because of the grace of God that has been shown to us in Jesus right now. If you have never said yes to following Jesus, that life can begin today. If you're already a follower of Jesus, this is the life you're created for. This is the life you're called into, life in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is one that we can maybe hear a lot thrown around in in church or as we read scripture, and we never reflect deeply on what it means, but I think it can transform us if we take it seriously. Your existence is not in yourself. It's not in your work. It's not in where you vacation. It's not in the circles you get to run in. It is in Christ. If your existence is in Christ, then everything is wrapped up in him just as much as right now your existence is in this building. If your existence is in Christ, it is like putting a bookmark in a book where the bookmark and the book become united. What is true of Christ is true of you. The access to God available to Jesus is available to you. If you remember in the passage we looked at last week at the end of chapter 1, Paul said that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Now he's saying that we can be seated with him. This is the life Jesus has made available. And if that's true, that should change our day to day. If our existence is in Christ, then that should impact how we parent. If our existence is in Christ, that should change our marriages. If our existence is in Christ, it should change our schedules. If our existence is in Christ, that should change how we work. If our existence is in Christ, it should change how we spend our money. If our existence is in Christ, then everything should be transformed by the resurrected grace that has been poured out in Jesus. If Jesus has done all this, then there are no areas of our life that are off limits to him. Because when you've been given an incredible gift, it transforms how you relate to the giver. When I was in college, a couple hours away from where I went to college, there was a free bookstore. Essentially, it was a renovated barn, and when ministers would retire, they would mail any books that they didn't want anymore to this place, and then anyone that wanted to could come and take whatever books that they wanted. And the only requirement, the only anything when you got there, they would hand you a clipboard with a sheet of paper on it and would say, hey, take whatever you want, take as many as you want. We've got more in storage that we don't have room for. Take, take as much as you can fit in your car, but just write down what books you are going to take with you so that we can uh, have it reflected in our records. Now, as a poor college student whose love language was free books, and still is to some extent, In that moment, being told what was available to me, my response was not, you just said the books were free and now you're asking me to fill out a piece of paper? Like you said I could take whatever I want, now I gotta write something down on a sheet of paper? Like I'm gonna take whatever I want, it's your problem to figure out what books I took. You can have a fun game after I'm out of here. No, it was... It was, yeah, this is an incredible gift. I'll, t- I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll jump through any hoops you have because of the magnitude of this gift that I, have, that I am being given. And that is what grace calls us to. That's a response that starts now, but it doesn't end now. It is grace from beginning to end, from now into eternity. As Paul says in verse 7, this begins now so that in the future God could show us the incomparable riches of his grace. We've been given a glimpse now, but there's more on the way. And these last few verses explain how that is possible. By grace through faith. God has called us into life with him, and we will see that, he will see that life all the way through. 
because God is the one who's made the first move to us. He deserves all the credit. We don't get to claim that we've helped in any way. We respond with our faith in who God is, what he has done, and what he's promised to do. But that faith is not just some vague feeling. It's not just some mental assent that, sure, I agree with this set of truths or anything like that. It is trust. It is allegiance. It is commitment, first and foremost, to who God is and what he's done for us, trusting in him instead of in ourselves or our accomplishments or anything else we can bring to the table. And that's humbling when we take this seriously. Because the people Paul wrote this letter to were just like any other group of people. They came from all sorts of different backgrounds and levels of society. And to them, to us, to anyone that reads these verses, the message of Jesus, the grace of God, levels the playing field. To people with high status, to people who think they got lots to bring to the table, the message of Jesus says you haven't earned anything. Your grades aren't getting you ahead of anyone else. Your net worth isn't getting you to the front of the line. You don't get a fast pass access to a spiritual VIP section. You are let in by grace and grace alone. And to people that are used to throwing their weight around and working around the system, grace is offensive because it says we cannot save ourselves but can only have life through the goodness of God. Grace humbles us. But to people with low status, the message of grace raises us up. To those used to getting the runaround or getting put down because they don't have the right connections or status, the message of grace instills in them more worth than they could ever imagine. Grace says there is no barrier to access with the God of the universe. The only thing we need is to realize that our only hope is to trust in God and God alone. That is how we begin to enter into life with God. Because that is true, we respond by walking. This passage began by Paul saying that we were walking in a path that leads to death. Now he ends by saying that, God, that, that we walk in good works because Jesus has turned us around. He's not saying we walk in good works to earn our standing before God, to retain our membership. He says we walk in good works in light of what Jesus has done because this is the life God created us to live. Good works are not a means to earn our salvation. They are the result of already having received life in Christ. Resurrected grace enables and empowers us to walk in the life God's created us to live. Maybe you've had the joy or you've seen the joy in somewhere else, someone else where they have found exactly what it is that they want to do. Maybe you've had a moment where you realize that you knew what you were going to do for the rest of your life because you found the perfect combination of things you were good at and things you enjoyed doing and things people were willing to pay you to do and it all made sense, it all clicked together. And that sort of joy is how we were created to live with God only infinitely more. A fish was made for water. A horse was made to run, and you were created to have life with God. That's what Paul means when he says that we are God's handiwork. That, that word there in, in the original language is the word from which we get our English word poem. And if you think about what a poem is, it is a bunch of words uh, that are not just randomly collected, although they might seem that way if you don't, know, don't read poetry all that often. But they are intentionally and carefully crafted and arranged and chosen specifically so that they can communicate a specific and beautiful message. And Paul says that something like that is the detail and the intentionality with which God has created you and the life that he desires for you. Sometimes we get in our head that life with God is a drag, that you just have to keep rules, you just got to be good enough, you got to miss out on all the cool things in this life, but God will make it up to you later. And that is not the life Paul describes here. Life with God is not delayed gratification. 
It is stepping into life as God created you to live, empowered by his grace. And yes, that will look different at times. That's not because it's inferior. It's because we live in a world under the reign of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and his agenda for how our life is supposed, supposed to run and gods are opposed to one another. So we'll look strange when we stand for truth and others say we need to catch up with the times. We look strange when we're generous and others say we should be stingy. We will look strange when we love our enemies instead of yelling at them on social media. We will look strange when someone tries to harm us and we turn the other cheek. We will look strange when we serve instead of demanding that our needs be met. That, that strangeness is not because we're stepping, it's not because we're misguided, it's not because we're old-fashioned or confused or anything like that. It is because we are stepping into resurrected life while the world is passing away. It's because we, we know the whole story, and it's a better one. I was once sitting in a parking lot uh, in my car. I was listening to the end of a podcast before I got out, and it was making me laugh. Uh, and so I'm sitting in the car by myself laughing, and as I'm doing that, a friend of mine pulls up in the parking spot next to me and looks at me and sees me sitting in the car by myself laughing, completely alone. And to them, I looked insane. At least I assumed so. But to me, that made perfect sense. It, nothing seemed odd about that situation, as odd as it might have looked from, someone with, in, from the perspective of someone with less information, because I had the whole story and when we walk in good works, we might look strange, but that's because we're walking a different walk, living a different story, stepping into life with God, empowered and sustained by his grace. And we could talk all day about grace and not run out of things to say, but I want to wrap things up with three truths from this passage that I think can transform us if we take it seriously. First is that grace is greater than our sin. Paul paints a dark picture in these verses of life apart from God. And it's a portrait we need to take seriously. Apart from Jesus, we are walking on a path that ends in death. But the fact that the story doesn't end there means that no matter what we do, no matter how far down the path we travel, the power of the grace of Jesus to turn us around is stronger. If you've never followed Jesus and are wondering if the roof's going to cave in on you this morning because you had the audacity to come into a church building, there is nothing you could do that would disqualify you from the mercy of God. He will treat you better than you deserve because he treats all of us better than we deserve. Don't stay in your mess when he wants to clean you up. Come and be healed. Come and have life. And if you have experienced that, this, the second step is to recognize that grace requires response. And I want to hold those things in tension because we're not saying that grace gets you in the door but then your good works keep you in there or anything like that. But what we are saying is that grace that has not been experienced through a transformed life stops short. Because Jesus turned us around, we walk in the life he's created us to live. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'm not trying to get you to wonder if you're actually in the clear with God, if you need to double check or anything or something like that. But I'm asking you if you're allowing the grace of God to work in your life. Maybe there's sin to repent of. Maybe there's areas of life that you're keeping to yourself when they need to be given to Jesus. Maybe your approach to following Jesus is, that's fine as long as I keep things at a distance, but really I'm just here to keep my parents happy. I'm just here to keep my spouse happy. I'm just here because I think it's good for the kids or whatever it might be. And if that's you, I'm asking you to consider the fullness of grace. 
God has been better to us than we could ever imagine. He's opened up the door into life with him as we were created to live it. And keeping the grace of God at a distance does not give us the best of both worlds. It doesn't give us fun now and good, good things later. It's a rejection of the life God's created us to live. If you left church today and said, I'm going to go down to I-90 and I'm going to go to Austin through St. Charles, you're going to run into some problems at some point. And if you're trying to follow Jesus partially, you're trying to walk in two opposite directions at the same time and it won't work, so instead walk in the grace of Jesus. Because doing that leads to resurrection. That's the life Jesus died and rose from the dead to bring us. That's what he has turned us around for. He's not told us to turn around and stand facing that direction and one day he'll come and get us and take us the rest of the way there. He has turned us around and he's told us to start walking until he comes back to take us the rest of the way. So if you need to turn around, turn. If you've already turned around, then walk. Because it's the life we were created for. It's a life that stretches into eternity. And sure, there are bumps along the way. Walks are, are steady and boring and everyone has different paces and sometimes you go uphill and sometimes you go downhill and sometimes their path is smooth and sometimes it's not. But it is the life that God invites us into. So no matter who you are, take the next step in grace because grace will empower you as you do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace that's greater than our sin that you've lavished on us in Jesus. We thank you that you're rich in mercy, that you're good to us, you're better to us than we deserve. So God, as people in all walks of life, people with all sorts of experiences, we ask that you would help us to see how to walk with you, whether that's turning around, walking with you for the first time, taking a next step, picking up the pace, whatever it is, God, we ask that you would meet us where we are, so that we might walk alongside you in your grace wherever you lead. Give us wisdom as we do that. Help us encourage one another as we do that together. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.